From the New York office of Oxford University Press, this is the Oxford Comment. My name is Nicole, multimedia producer, and our host for this episode is William Beasley, professor of history at the University of Arizona and editor-in-chief of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Latin American History. On this episode, he moderates a roundtable discussion with historians Stephanie Wood and Susie Porter about Mexican women's self-expression through textiles and dress throughout history to the present day. Societal changes in post-revolutionary Mexico of the 1920s produced shifts in urban women's activity and mobility that were reflected in their dress and appropriation of indigenous, stylistic, and symbolic traditions. Women today continue to use traditional forms, such as embroidered huipales, as a means of expressing their identities and rights through fabric. Mexican women, since before the arrival of the Spaniards in 1521, have found ways to express their identities, represent their families and communities, and advocate their rights. This podcast explores three dimensions of the actions of Mexican women. Dr. Stephanie Wood, director of the University of Oregon's Wired Humanities Projects, will discuss women's pipiles and other textile products. Professor Susie Porter, director of the University of Utah's Gender Studies Division, will discuss urban women's fashion. And I, William Beasley, professor of history at the University of Arizona, will talk about the women of Coyomapan, Puebla, who recently have embroidered a series of tapestries to express their human, civil, and political rights. Following the presentations, the three participants will discuss the general topic of Mexican women and their expressions of identity rights. Stephanie. We had an exhibition at the University of Oregon about 10 years ago, um, which I developed with a graduate student, Blanca Randa, who's now an assistant professor at Western Washington. Um, Blanca and I were interested in exploring Mesoamerican textiles for two things in particular. Uh, First, we were interested in looking at textiles as an important medium for women's expression, especially where traditional literacy could be out of reach for women, and second, as a medium for the expression of cultural heritage, oftentimes actually cultural preservation. And we became especially interested in women's huipiles, um, as Bill has mentioned. These are indigenous women's blouses or tunics, as some people will call them, which are social documents of a sort, um, rich with embedded meaning. They comprise what some people are willing to admit is a visual and symbolic language, which Blanca and I were calling the text in the textiles, just for fun. Uh, Turns out in in my wider readings, I find other people have come to that same catchy phrase. At any rate, we found these texts are usually shared or understood by the community, um, even when at times we pilis can be individualized. And in other words, there's room for creativity. Uh, Besides these more overt meanings embedded in the symbolic language, the tunics also carry a subtext, what we call subtext, playing with, again, with the word text. We see, for example, that a weepil can say female, indigenous, a certain ethnicity. And the women 
are aware of these meanings. Uh, sometimes they are intentionally portrayed. Sometimes meanings are read by outsiders, rightly or wrongly. And besides text and subtext, we also wanted to look at context. So in other words, the influences of time, place, and external factors such as colonization or market demands and so on. And then finally, just for fun, we thought we would play with the word intertextuality to look at the ways textiles can coincide in meaning with, for example, pictorial manuscripts or architecture or even agriculture, which all have are imbued with cultural beliefs and practices. Um, so that's our that was our theoretical approach. And now I just want to share with you a few examples. I'm going to refer to images that I hope will be on the blog. So I hope listeners can consult the images and see um, a, a little bit better what I'm trying to describe here. Uh, one example comes from San Juan Cinco in the state of Puebla. It shows a woman weaving with a backstrap loom in front of a mountain. And this is one scene in a series of paintings from at least 1650 or later in the original. We now have copies from the late 19th century and Oregon owns one of these copies. Anyway, in this scene, uh, we have a natural spring, which looks like a serpent winding down the mountain and connecting to the rectangle at the front of the woman's tunic right below her neck. Uh, Alejandro de Avila, a textile scholar uh, in Oaxaca, says that serpents across Mexico are considered widely considered spring owners or mothers of the water. And so I've been puzzling over this scene, and I think that's the best explanation that I've seen so far that could apply to this particular example, where we have the weaver symbolizing woman's connection to water and therefore probably fertility. Another um, example of a wheatfield I want to mention comes from San Andres Chicahuastla, which is in the state of Oaxaca. This is a bright red with stripes uh, tunic, which immediately says triki to all the people in, in the area of Oaxaca. Uh, it's one of the Mixtec culture groups. This blouse or, or tunic is believed to convert the wearer into a butterfly. It also refers to the sun because around the woman's neck there are rays emanating that are supposed to be sun rays. And then there are ribbons hanging down the front which refer to rain. So again, we have water and sunshine uh, and a butterfly, which seem to relate to fertility and life. And in some cultures, butterflies were believed in pre-Hispanic times to help move the sun across the sky every day. So it kept the life going. Butterflies also have, of course, the interesting transformation uh, from caterpillar into a flying object. And so they represent transformation and growth life and death and, and the cycle of life. It's uh, ethnographic work that has helped us um, come to understand the meaning of the Chico Huastla Huitiles. Finally, I just want to mention briefly the wall hangings from San Francisco Tamibet, which is also in Oaxaca, but in the valley. It's interesting how women's experience with making their family's clothing has led them to branch out into new and different forms of textile expression. So, a case in point uh, here in, from Tani Vet, we see women expressing concerns about the emigration of their children and spouses to go to the U.S. to search for work and the dangers that they encounter. So we know that people have to jump on and off trains sometimes, which is very dangerous. 
Uh, one mother shows a, a, a child getting tangled in barbed wire. We know that people get abandoned in the desert. Um, and then second, second kind of general theme that recurs about the emigration experience is how much these women miss their spouses and children terribly anxious for their return. So we see an example where a mother is calling her son who's working as a chef in the U.S. saying, when are you coming home? So those are just some examples of both historical and contemporary textiles uh, that I've been looking at. And uh, we can come back and discuss them more when, when uh, we've all had a chance to introduce our projects. Susie. My comments focus on women's uses of dress uh, during the 1920s in urban Mexico, and I'm drawing on my own research as well as that of other scholars. Shifts in women's social roles, public activity, mobility, and politics led them to adopt new manners of dress in the 1920s. And that dress was not simply an expression of personal taste, but personal taste that's constructed by a specific historical moment. Uh, so what is that historical moment for the 1920s that's important for understanding women's dress? First of all, is the Mexican Revolution of 1910. The revolution was many things, including a political project that questioned the status and rights of workers, peasants in the countryside, and also of women. There were material changes going on as well at this time. Women began migrating in larger and larger numbers to Mexico City, first impelled by economic needs with the expansion of capitalist agriculture in the countryside, but then also in response to the violence and dislocation associated with the Mexican Revolution and war. There are also shifts going on in women's employment. Larger numbers of women who, in decades past, might have been uh, more engaged in productive work in the home began to work outside of the home. So that during the 1920s, more and more women donned their best dress, the hem of which crept ever upward, and made their way through Mexico City streets on their way to work. Many of those women went to work in government offices. As the uh, Mexican Revolution, the violent phase of the Mexican Revolution subsided, revolutionary leaders committed themselves to institutionalizing the promises that they had made in the heat of war. Politicians and statesmen set to work passing laws and opening offices to carry out reforms to um, and initiating political projects to support economic growth, mediate class conflict. All those initiatives required an enormous amount of paperwork, and women took jobs as clerks, secretaries, typists, shorthand typists, to process land petitions, record labor conflicts, and to coordinate efforts to educate and inoculate the masses. This meant that between 1921 and 1930, the number of women who were working for the government in Mexico City increased by 2,000%. Women's sheer numbers, concentration in specific offices, their dress, their habits of social interaction, filled government offices, as one journalist commented at the time, like cheap perfume. <laughs> Whereas during the 1910s, one or two women might have worked as an, an apprentice or a typist. Now in the 1920s, it was common for women to occupy entire offices, like the typing pool or an administrative office. These shifts in women's uh, mobility and activity was reflected in the dress. There was a shift from the Victorian profile that emphasized women's breasts and their hips, um, and, and also the use of the, the, the corset that, that um, contributed to this profile. 
And the shift was towards a more light body, uh, one that accentuated the breath. And we have, during the 1920s, the appearance of what people called la chica moderna, or the modern girl. For those familiar with the U.S. context, this is something similar to the flapper, but in the Mexican context, should be understood as something also quite, quite different. Joanne Hirschfield argues that the chica moderna was largely recognizable by her dress. However, more than dress, Ahit Sluis argues that the physical body was integral to what she calls the deco body. That body was uh, interpreted as, at one and the same time, androgynous, but also exerting feminine sexuality. The Chica Moderna sought to have more control over her body, and that work that I mentioned earlier, the, the source of income, facilitated some of that independence and control. The sources of inspiration for the dress that women uh, took on during the 1920s gives us a sense of how the options from which women selected circulated at this time. So in the 1920s, um, Mexican theater uh, owners brought a review called the Bataclan from France uh, that included dance and scantily clad women who uh, emphasized this deco body. Uh, of uh, athletic, thin uh, body. The deco body appeared in movies from the U.S. and Europe and in Mexican magazines in the popular press. And eventually these images, this, this review, the Bataclan, moved to street theater, or what in Mexico is referred to as carpas, which is a, a tent space of, of entertainment. So then working class women who sought entertainment in carpas and read magazines began to adopt these styles. And those who could afford to go to the movies did so, um, and, and again, uh, adopted these styles according to their own liking and circumstances. It's interesting because on the one hand, Sleuth argues that the deco body was accessible to women of many different uh, ethnic backgrounds, and so served as a bridge between, uh, allowed for a mestiza identity uh, with, to express the deco body. On the other hand, Anne Rubenstein, in a discussion of an attack by a group of male students on young women dressed as flappers, found that in part those male students took as a affront that women who they thought of as too indigenous would adopt this flapper style. This scholarly debate tells us not that one or the other scholar is wrong, but rather that uh, in different specific contexts, different conflicts, different physical spaces, women uh, adopted dress in different ways, and people read that dress um, in different ways as well. These conflicts also show us that debates over women's dress often served as a proxy for debates over women's rights more generally. So the attack on the flappers that Rubenstein looks at was in a way an argument about women's new mobility in the streets. Another similar kind of debate occurred in the 1920s over the office, uh, the way that office workers dressed that I mentioned earlier. In the 1920s, as rumors of sexual exploitation, of flirtation, and inappropriate behavior circulated regarding women's uh, entrance into these new workspaces, someone introduced a reform or a proposal that women should be required to wear uniforms at work. Some women thought this would be economical, some thought it would be really boring to have to wear a uniform, and yet other women 
wondered why men weren't being asked to wear uniforms as well. So in a way then this argument over dress, over uniform was also one about, uh, about women's rights to, to specific jobs, um, their rights to be treated uh, equally or not to men, uh, for example. One woman, Leonor Lack, who was a longtime government employee and writer, as well as women's activist, wrote an article to a magazine, uh, in an, uh, wrote a magazine article in which she argued that while she did not love this slapper style, she called the gringo style, she did argue that women should have the right to dress how they wanted. She admonished her audience not to be distracted from the issues that really mattered to women, which she said was the vote. During the 1920s, and this in a way circles back to some of the comments that Stephanie Wood made, uh, women also appropriated indigenous dress. An important aspect of the Mexican Revolution was a cultural nationalism that manifests itself in the celebration of indigenous culture. This, of course, has its roots in earlier periods, but suffice it to say that in Mexico, as elsewhere in the 1920s and 30s, leftist people who identified with the left called on popular cultural expression to counter the status quo. They adopted indigeneity. Women did this as well. People would be most familiar, I think, with Frida Kahlo, the Mexican artist known for her intense paintings, fierce self-expression of her condition as a woman, and her tumultuous relationship with Mexican painter Diego Rivera. In her own paintings, as well as in photographs taken of Kahlo, she appeared in Tejuana dress, a dress associated uh, with uh, Oaxaca. Oriana Badley argues that Kahlo's adaptation or adoption of Tijuana dress was an expression of homage to women who wore that dress as women from a strong matriarchal culture who had a long history of resisting uh, colonialism. Badley also argues that the Tijuana dress was an attractive disguise for Kahlo's broken body injured in, a, in, a, in an accident when she was young. In 1933, Kahlo wrote that the gringas, some women from the United States, were trying to copy her dress, and the poor souls just looked like cabbages. While the comment is funny, it's also an expression of nationalism, of pride in that which is uniquely Mexican, and often meant to distinguish itself from the United States. But of course, this is a, this is a construction. There is not something uniquely Mexican about indigenous dress. And, and less so about uh, urban Mexican women adopting that dress, taking it out of its specific local context and using it in, in a very different context for different meanings. Another important figure in Mexican history who wore Tijuana dress was Concha Michel, a contemporary of Kahlo's, both ran in similar circles of artists, intellectuals, and activists. Michel wore indigenous-inspired dress, and her hair braided and coiled up on her head as she worked tirelessly um, as a teacher and as an activist during the 30s and 40s. And that adaptation, adaptation of Tijuana dress was a way to mark her feminism as Mexican, as not something adopted from outside. Many times critics of feminists said, oh, that feminism is just something that they got from, from the United States. It's not really Mexican to be a feminist. And Michelle, in a way, by wearing the Tijuana dress, was identifying her activism in favor of women as uniquely Mexican. And in particular, she 
defined indigenous cultures as being concerned with motherhood and family. And so therefore her feminism then was associated with an emphasis on motherhood and family. Jocelyn Olcott calls this an embodied performance. Uh, Francie Chasson Lopez points out how the 1990s historical soap opera, El Vuelo del Aguila, which was made in the 1990s, succumbed to the demands of media, media spectacle and led to a very ahistorical depiction of dress. So we had in El Vuelo del Aguila, Salma Hayek, who portrayed a, a real historical character, Juana Catarina Romero, who in the series was primarily identified for her love relationship with the man who would become president Porfirio Diaz. She wore big gold earrings, large heavy embroidered skirts and blouses, which, um, and appeared working selling ribbons. Uh, in fact, when Caterina Romero began, in fact, selling cigarettes, but also more importantly to this topic of dress, the dress was luxurious and more the kind of dress that was used for village festivals and not something that someone would have worn on a day-to-day -day basis. That opulent dress contributed to a depiction of women, indigenous women, as exotic, decadent, and sexualized, which was really quite counter to the real activity of women at that time. And in fact, Juana Caterina Romero was not simply a rumored lover of Porfirio Diaz. She was a very important businesswoman in Tehuantepec and was responsible for transforming the apparel of the Tehuanas from a fitted huipil that allowed women limited movement and mobility, taking small steps to a much more capacious dress that allowed movement. Juana Caterina Romero, as Francis Chasson Lopez shows, was responsible for instituting the heavy velvet skirts that are now associated with the Tehuanas and that Hayek uh, wore in the series. Juana Caterina Romero traveled extensively in England, Germany, Austria, and France, and was influenced by the latest fashions in those countries. As she traveled, her skirts grew wider and larger. She designed her own muslin wikilis and then had them manufactured in Manchester. She used Austrian silk gauze for larger wipilis, silks bordered with gold for sashes. So all of this dress then came from a woman's business interests and mobility beyond her community across national boundaries and into the area of business and is a part of the history that is important to, to remember. And I hope that the listeners might take a look at Chesson Lopez's article and the, the work of the other scholars to get a sense of the larger political moment during which, for example, the soap opera appeared. Turning now to the women of Coyoa Mapan, Puebla, who live on the slopes of an extinct volcano called the Sierra Negra in the southeastern part of the state near the border of Veracruz, we're going to talk about indigenous women that from the time of the settlement of this community, by Totonacs before they were conquered by the Aztecs and before the arrival of the Spanish, have continued to value a set of traditions that are often expressed in fabric in the community. Today, many of these women in the community still continue to speak Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs, although they are bilingual for the most part. Missionaries named the community Santa Maria Coyoamapan to celebrate the Virgin of Victory after the Battle of Lepanto, October 7, 1571. 
This is interesting because the Pope later renamed that particular virgin the Virgin of the Rosary, and it's celebrated in the community with all sorts of activities, including a dance drama of the Moros y Cristianos called Los Doce Pares de Francia, that is, the 12 peers of France, and this refers to Carlo Magno or Charlemagne in Mexico. This is a rare performance, indeed very strange and a very odd dance, but it involves stories of Charlemagne sending troops into Spain to fight the Moors and to participate in the Battle of Lepanto. And this gets reflected in some of the textiles that have been produced by women in the community. Moving ahead several centuries to 2012, a survey was taken among the women in the community that revealed that less than half of them had any understanding of their rights, of their rights as citizens, as their rights as human beings, as their rights as Mexicans. And consequently, because of that survey, the Mexican National Foundation for Human Rights and the Mexican Organization for Women organized an effort to have those women who understood their rights express them in ways to teach the other members of the community. As a result, a co-op was formed and about 40 women decided to embroider, embroider their rights. They discussed what their rights were, what they believed should be embroidered, and then began the process. In the end, they produced 27 tapestries, and these tapestries are all roughly four feet by two feet, incredibly bright colors of silk and woolen yarn that were provided by the Mexican women's um, non-governmental agency. In these, what's most striking is some of the rights are repeated. And one of the most important is the right to a life free of violence. And this particular textile, there are several of them, but the one that I think is most striking, this particular textile tapestry shows a butterfly, brightly colored butterfly with a whole series of other colors around it. This is particularly significant because in this area of Puebla, domestic violence is a major, major factor in the lives of families women, and others in the community. A colleague of mine who spent two years there doing research on a water project lived in the area, and once his wife got to know some of the women in the community, one of the first things they asked her was how often her husband beat her. This was typical in the community. So this is especially important 
and came up a number of times, and I think it's striking that it's a butterfly that was used to indicate this right. In addition, another one of the rights that the women were particularly interested in was a quality of rights. That is, that each of the men who had certain rights, that those should be matched by the same rights for women. And the image used to show this is quite interesting because it shows a man and a woman, a man and a woman in the embroidery, and they're standing in front of a sun and a bright landscape so that this expresses, I think, a happy vision of life in general with this sense of equality. A third of the various rights that they wanted to express through their embroideries is the right to vote. And even though since the right to vote was included in 1953, very late in the hemisphere, and was first used for a presidential election in 1958. Nevertheless, apparently women have been regularly denied the right to vote in this community by their husbands, or they've been directed on how to vote by their husbands. For me, perhaps the most fascinating of the embroideries is one that calls for the right to justice. That is, women are entitled to justice, to living in a society based on law. And the image that is used to display this in the embroidery displays a man and a woman standing with a judicial font. And it's interesting that these two figures both have white faces rather than the moreno or brown coloring in all of the other images. These have white. And this suggests, I think, at least we can talk about this, about whether justice is for more Spanish, more mestizo Mexicans rather than for members of the indigenous community and suggests not only that women have been denied this, but also men in the community. Other embroideries that are part of this collection include the right of education, the right of access to technology that includes, I think it's quite interesting, that includes a picture of a cell phone and a computer as expressions of technology and an interest to um, and right to a safe environment, to good health, and to good food. Those are all included in these beautiful embroideries. I would say that I'm struck by the coincidence between what Stephanie described in terms of how we feel are constructed and worn by women, that there's a 
there's a collective meaning woven into that fabric, but there's also individual meaning, meaning for the individual. And it seems that that's the same case for what I was talking about for the 1920s, that individual women are expressing taste, but there's also a collective meaning, whether that's the modern flapper clothing that allowed women to identify with the workplace, with modern rights, with the new role for women in society, or if it's the connecting to the cultural nationalism of the, of the revolutionary period and participating in that collective meaning of drawing from indigenous cultures and creating a new meaning within the urban context. Um, I was also struck by the way that people dress, women have dressed historically, trying to communicate one kind of meaning and that they often can be read in very different ways. Yeah, I found that commonality running between our presentations as well. When you spoke about Frida, I was recalling a photo in, in which she is with her family. And she and a lot of the women in, about her age, and I think this is the 1920s, are dressed like a flapper, perhaps. And, and yet she stands apart as very individual, choosing something completely different to wear. And, um, and I think you can as you mentioned, you know, she she's very um, representative of that of that rather different strain and in choosing to represent something that ran, ran against the norm and yet and kind of created a whole new trend where other women also began to dress. I, I think of Tina Modotti as well and, and you mentioned the other woman who wore the Tijuana dress. If we're thinking about the same photograph, she's dressed in a man's suit. And that's right. Women were we're not likely to dress in a, in a men's suit, but it was a way of adopting this androgynous style and taking it even one step further than the flapper dress. And women very subconsciously were thinking men wear suits and they get to walk out on the streets and go to work and they can be in cafes and they have all this mobility and privilege. And, and women were trying to appropriate that, you know, step into that privilege themselves. That's right. And and sometimes she just wore, well, Chinese pajamas, but also slacks. And that was, you know, the start of, you know, the tip of the iceberg where women gradually shift towards wearing pants, not just, not just suits, but uh, at least right. pants. And um, yeah, yeah, it's very, she's a, she's a fascinating figure for representing, I think that, that time period. And like you mentioned, the con the context for me is, is super interesting. And, and then the individual versus the community and also how women are, what they're trying to project versus how people are perceiving them. So when those indigenous women were attacked for dressing as flappers, you know, uh, that response, that visceral this response in those young men um, is very telling of, of uh oh, they're stepping out of their place. This, this is, you know, sort of the subtext we were talking about is, um, you know, how they're perceived, I, and that can be so different, wrong or right, but different from what's intended. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that the first ladies of the revolutionary presidents in the 1920s also on various occasions appeared in Tawana dress. So there are pictures of Caius's wife, for example, Rigon's, the other presidential wives doing it on occasion. And, of course, we should mention that there is, during the 1920s, the whole conception of indigenous beauty 
in the cont annual contest for an Indigenous woman who had to wear Indigenous dress and speak Indigenous language to be named the Queen. Scholars argue that the, the dress came to stand in many times for that ethnic identity, that the right. that dress could, could signify race or a generalized sense of ethnicity, aside from physical appearance, language, uh, one's, you know, place of origin. Yeah, I found it really interesting that you started by talking about an image of a woman with doing backstrap weaving, which is not what I think most people think of when they think about weaving. They think about big looms and hand-driven looms, and at least from what my understanding is in Oaxaca, that during the colonial period, men worked looms, women only did backstrap, backstrap strap weaving, which I think is fascinating as well. Yes, Europeans introduced the floor loom and the technology, the higher the technology, and this actually started in the colonial period. So, you know, you get these weaving workshops and they wanted more men in there and they want, you know, they were accustomed to having men and technology, you know, working together. And uh, one good thing was that women who continued to weave on backstrap looms and still do today in places like Oaxaca and and out of the way communities, um, they were allowed to continue weaving what they wanted. And and that was one of the wonderful ways they've been able to preserve culturally embedded messages in their weaving that you can still read today. So the ethnography of Chikawashla, I mean, not just the fact that the woman is a butterfly when she puts on this garment, but every tiny detail can still be explained by the weavers. They know what, you know, there are, you know, 60 different kinds of butterflies represented in the tiny details. There's a woman becoming a butterfly. There are, you know, families and children and lots of fertility symbols and so on and so forth. Anyway, so because they were sort of ignored and allowed to continue weaving to make their family's clothing while the men were drawn off to work in the obrajes and textile workshops, um, inadvertently allowed this wonderful cultural preservation that's so interesting. Even though, of course, at the same time, you know, the weepio continued to have this rural, sometimes poverty subtext, as well as female indigenous. So um, the women today, for instance, I work with a lot of indigenous girls in the state of Oaxaca, and they get on their traditional dress for special occasions, but mostly they're wearing jeans and t-shirts, you know, and and trying to be modern, you know, quote unquote, um, and, and then leave by the wayside the old ways of dressing. Not entirely. I mean, some of them are being encouraged to hang on to the old ways. In fact, that was something I thought was interesting, Bill, in your discussion. I noticed in one of the tapestries that you have uh, photographs of, and I'm not sure if it's one of the ones that'll be on the blog, but there are some speech scrolls coming out of the mouths of figures in the scene. And the speech scroll comes, goes way back to the codex uh, of that, you know, of pre-Hispanic and colonial times. So I'm um, interested in the way maybe there have been influences toward a revitalization of those older symbols, because I don't think there's a direct continuity of using speech scrolls uh, in textiles from pre-Hispanic times to the present, but that there's an awareness of those and and an effort to recapture that technique is very interesting to me. In the Tanibet textiles, we have an 
a mestiza curator who has gone to the community and helped guide the women in the creation of their textiles in part because they want something that they can sell. And I noticed your tapestries are also for sale. So this is an income stream for women that can be very significant in rural impoverished communities. Um, anyway, the outside curator in, in the Tony Bet case is um, Marietta Bernstorff, who is very familiar with art in the US and in Mexico. She lives in Oaxaca. But I, I wonder to what extent sometimes she's saying, make some more of those about migration because there's a big market for it. There's a big interest in the whole story of Mexican immigration into the US. So Mexican, I mean, US buyers will, will be interested in those. You know, to what extent did the Mexican government who went to work with your women in Comalapan, what, were they encouraging certain themes or, you know, specifically teaching them about certain rights uh, that then were reflected in the tapestry? No, they had meetings with the women and had the women who thought they understood their rights discuss what the, what they thought their rights were and what their rights should be, rather than telling them which ones to to do. So I think uh -huh. that was really interesting. I I should add here that one of the revenue streams that these women embroiderers have is they do piecework doing um, the kind of square that's on a lot of wipiles on the front part. They do that, and they do those and provide them to another community a few miles away where they're put in wipiles that are then sold to a dealer who takes them to Mexico City. And they really resent that, that they don't, they only do this one piece. So there's hostility because it's very cheap labor, of course. Wow. Interesting. They farm, so some community farms out that part of what a woman used to make the entire weed peel herself, including the rectangle at the bottom of the V-neck. That's super interesting that, that that's now a division of labor like that. I had a whole page on the meaning of the rectangle. It's kind of like a map of the cosmos at least in pre-Hispanic times, the earliest manuscripts that show those rectangles have various symbols that have like a four-part organization with a center. And even today, you know, currently still in ethnography, we learn that the head of the wheat peel is where the woman, I mean, the neck opening is where the woman puts her head. And when she does that, she becomes the center of the universe. And the wheat peel itself, as well as that design on the rectangle, represent the four wow. cardinal directions. So it's like a map of the cosmos, and the woman is the center of the universe. It's just incredible. Then she's also the sun. So there's definitely still a connection where she's the sun, which is the center of our universe, right? So that the awareness that they had of that, but also this importance that it gives women uh, by, you know, this garment just makes them the center of the universe. That, you know, it's just mind-boggling and fascinating. And then there's a lot more. The four colors that are used in Wipiles, red, white, black, and yellow, are also the colors of the four cardinal directions. And you could go, I could go on, but it, it's really rich and interesting. But kind of sad for me to hear that the women who are making these rectangles now, maybe they don't, you know, they're resentful about the change that has come. So, Susie, what were the major colors that the Chicas Modernas wore? Were there any favorite colors of these, I guess, flapper dress? You know, most of the um, the photographs that have here are in black and white, and I don't know enough myself personally to say 
what colors might have otherwise appeared, um, but they're very often light colors with a very straight profile. Uh, the hemline, you know, went, started at the ankle and then started to move up um, towards the knee with, with fringe. A lot of what's important about the flapper dress is the profile um, uh-huh. more, than, more than the color, I'd say. Are, do you find color to be particularly important in what you were, do, you were analyzing? Yeah, I do. And from what Stephanie was just saying, I think colors are, are really interesting and, and particularly Mexican because of the importance of cochineal and, and indigo. So the red and blue, you know, I think have a, a vibrancy. A lot of the inspiration for the flapper clothing is from the U.S. and Europe. Uh, as I said, you know, adopted to Mexican circumstances. But my impression is is that that's that's in a way that dress that modernity is distinct. It's counter to the kinds of textile traditions that that Stephanie was talking about, and that then with the Tijuana dress that that women appropriate like women like uh, Michelle and Kahlo appropriated, that you do have, you know lace slips and skirts that are embroidered with bright colors and uh, maybe flowers, you know, woven into one's hair. So there's a lot of emphasis then on color. During the late 19th century and into the 19-teens, when girls went to elementary school, an important part of the curriculum was sewing. And so young women knew how to sew their own clothing. And many of the, the middle-class women who took jobs in offices would buy a pattern from a magazine and they'd make their own dresses. Um, or they would go buy cloth at a discounted price somewhere and take a picture from a magazine and take that, that picture and the cloth to a seamstress um, maybe at La Lagunilla Market or someone who, a neighbor who sewed clothing and pay that woman to copy the latest fashion. So the, there's an interesting way that, that women's education facilitated, you know, women's capacity to continue to make their own clothing as they moved into this very, you know, mo- new modern world in the workplace. But maintaining a foot in the domestic sphere in terms of obviously of family obligations, but also the time invested in, in, in constructing their own clothing. Contradiction about working in offices for women was that being attractive was at one and the same time a requirement, practically, right? That, that it facilitated getting right. a job, it facilitated work relationships, women made sure their makeup was nice, that they were nicely dressed, um, but then it was also sometimes held against them. Mm-hmm. Women's ability to sew is partly what has, and the, you know, sewing for their families or whatever over the years has allowed them to continue to find new expressions through fabric. And there we get the Tani Vet and the Komalapan uh, textiles that can be hung on walls, which is something sort of a new concept, I think, in terms of pre Hispanic uh, traditions. But the expression through textiles uh, is a continuity that runs across the ages. Another thing that was mentioned was the hair and how it, beca- it could be symbolic of indigenous dress added with ribbons and 
braids woven around the head and so on. And that's something that goes back also to pre-Hispanic times where there were three things that were clearly gendered. And when we look at an early manuscript, we can tell it's a female if one, she wears a, a weepio. Two, her hair is done in a certain way. And then the third thing is the posture. Women sat on the ground with their legs tucked underneath them. Whereas men, if they sat on the ground, they had their knees up under their chin or they were on a stool of some sort or, or stood because women were associated with the earth and men with the celestial sphere. So the posture was important. And I'm sure in, even though those would come to be greatly varied, hair, dress, and posture continued to be really significant into the present day. This all leads to an idea that at some point we should discuss Singer's sewing machines. Benito Juarez, <laughs> when he was in exile, was very interested in bringing Singer sewing machines to Mexico. And if you go in antique stores or use junk stores or lug it in the market, you will find old Singer sewing machines all over the place. And during World War, World War II actually, maybe a little earlier, there was a campaign where women were encouraged to teach, if they could read, to teach someone else to read. And if they did, they were given time on the Singer sewing machine at the community center. This was one of the presidential first ladies who designed this campaign. I think it was Cardenas' wife. Dress and other forms of adornment are types of social documents that reflect a lot about time and place. But in the Mexican context, we see some interesting continuities, even as great variation arises with individual and community identities and increasing consciousness of rights. I would add to what Stephanie said that it's important to think about the way that, that textiles and dress are used to talk about other issues, right? To talk about women's rights, to communicate about what is a part of a political project or not, what is thought of as being Mexican or not, and that all those categories, in fact, are culturally constructed. When we, the example of women appropriating indigenous dress in urban Mexico shows how when styles and ways of dress are moved from one location to another, that their, their meaning is, is, is shifted significantly. And I might argue, too, that it seems that we know much more about women's use of dress in history and that perhaps dress is more important for women, that women are held more accountable for the way they dress, um, but that also we might look more closely at the history of the way men are dressed and the, the meaning of that dress. I think that from what we've all been talking about, that the textiles dress serve as samplers in the sense that samplers were sewn or embroidered by women in the U.S., and it makes me wonder if Mexican women also did samplers. Yes, they did. Then it would be fascinating to compare what's said in those samplers with the expressions that come out in other textile forms or in other forms of dress. So it would be great to see a collection of those and to talk about those at some point. 
There is a wonderful collection of samplers in Oaxaca at the Textile Museum owned by Alejandro de Avila. And I believe he has, a, in preparation, a study of them, which will be very interesting. They do contain indigenous themes as well as nationalist themes and so on. Thank you to the listeners for joining us in this discussion about women and their expressions through textiles and dress. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Oxford Comment. For more episodes, check out the OUP blog. Thanks for listening.